Yeah. I'm sure you were made aware of the comments by Donald Sterling. Just yeah. wondering your thoughts and if you're surprised. I don't know if I'm surprised or not. I didn't like the comments, obviously. Uh, I'm going to tell you now, I'm speaking on behalf of the team, so the players are not going to deal with this issue. A lot of guys voiced their opinions. None of them were happy about it. We're trying to go after something that we've all dreamed about all our childhoods, and Donald or anyone else had nothing to do with that dream. Right now, our goals haven't changed. Our focus is on Golden State, and it's going to stay on Golden State. This is episode four, Fallout. Playoff basketball is the pinnacle of basketball. That's what you play 82 games for. That's what you go through training camp for. The ups and downs of the seasons, the pain, the blood, sweat, and tears. Blake Griffin and the Clippers were right in the middle of the playoffs when TMZ released that Donald Sterling tape late on Friday night, April 25th, 2014. Yeah, I'm just saying, and you're allowed to Instagram. You don't have to have yourself with walking with black people. You don't have to. Everyone had heard it. It was all anyone could talk about all weekend. And now here it was, Sunday morning, not even 48 hours later. And the Clippers, who had a 2-1 lead in the series against the Golden State Warriors, were supposed to play Game 4 up in Oakland. The players had worked their asses off from the time they were too young to hold a regulation ball to get to this day. This was Sterling's mess, not the players. And yet here it was, landing on their shoulders, consuming them. I just remember, as a team, we had to talk about it almost every time we met. You know what I mean? Because it was that big of a thing. Clipper coach Doc Rivers had seen a lot in his time. He'd experienced the highs and the lows of the NBA. First as a player, then as a coach. He'd also survived his own house being burned down in what was believed to have been a racially motivated incident. But even he had never seen anything quite like this. Like, I didn't understand the magnitude. I knew what Donald Sterling had said was awful, but I thought it was a sport thing. And then when we went to the press conference, and when I pulled up and I saw CBS truck, ABC truck, and then I saw the newsmen, I had to let the players, I always get off the bus first. And on that one, I said, all right, guys, go in the gym. I said, I'm on bus for 20 minutes. I'm saying, okay, this is not a sports story. And I remember that 20 minutes thinking, what the players asked me to say had to be represented because it was about them. And that's what I kept thinking. This is about them and representing them. Doc had begged his players to speak with one voice. And when they agreed, he offered them his. He would face the questions. He would give the answers. He would try to navigate this all-consuming mess. Our goal is to win the NBA title, and we're not going to let anything stand in the way of that. He did his best both to be his team's shield and their voice. Uh, That's adversity that we didn't want, but we have it. We have to deal with it internally, but we're not going to share it with anybody else. This is the greatest moment of Doc Rivers' career as a coach, or as a man. Longtime Clippers broadcaster, Ralph Lawler. He was all that was left, really, because Sterling was in disgrace. Doc had no place to turn, nobody to ask about anything. 
And he just did an unbelievable job of somehow getting it together and then keeping it together. I I don't know how he did it. But not even Doc could keep the world's prying ears and eyes from his players. I remember going to take my nap and waking up and like my phone being like 200 messages or something like that. The phones of the Clippers players were going crazy. Mark Spears is a writer for The Undefeated. He was covering the Clippers and Warriors playoff series. Everybody had an opinion. And I know it got to be overwhelming for a lot of the Clippers players because everybody was trying to tell them what they should do. Players, former players, journalists of all stripes and credibility were shouting their opinions from the rooftops. Even Steven Jackson, who had played for the Clippers earlier that season. I would not, money or nothing that could not make me go play for somebody that respects my race, where I had a lot, a long list of people who died where I'm able to to make millions of dollars that provide for my kids today. You can hear it in my voice that I'm upset with it because I know these guys still might go out there and play about somebody that's disrespecting their race and their elders. The Reverend Jesse Jackson was giving interviews about how the Clippers should react. Questions, what will they do? I know in the case of Trayvon Martin, the Miami Heat made a statement by wearing their hoodies uh, reacting to racist attack and the killing of Trayvon Martin. What will the players do? What will the players' union do? The story was all over the news, all over Sports Talk Radio. You know, I asked Doc Rivers, you know, if there's any kind of protest planned. I was actually told within the hour that players were considering actually not playing. You know, we've already heard some people asking for the Clippers not to play, for fans to not go to the game. It was a tough situation because it was like, what do you do? And you had people coming out the woodwork texting us saying, don't play in the game, make a stand. Clipper center Ryan Hollins felt that pressure. He felt everyone's outrage over Sterling. And he didn't think it was fair. People tried to be pretend to be so appalled when the story came out. But it's like, yo, y'all knew who he was. Why are you surprised? He's the same dude at that white Christmas party that you knew. He's the same dude who had to kick in black people out of his buildings. Why are you so appalled right now that you heard it in words that were supposed to be behind closed doors? Like, bro, like, do your research. But his teammate Matt Barnes understood a small but powerful nuance. What a difference a recording makes. This was one time where I think the organization knew, and I'm sure the NBA knew, like, we have a bad apple, and he finally fucked up, and and we have proof now. You know what I mean? Like, we have tape now. And looking at the scale and the magnitude of an owner of a professional team saying this stuff and being caught, I I knew as a team we needed to do something to stand together to show that that's just not right. You know, and ultimately they had to decide what they should do, not Grandma or LeBron James. I'm sure the Warriors players were texting with some of the Clippers players, hey, like, what can we do? Mark Spears from The Undefeated. The Warriors were ready to join forces with them in whatever they decided to do. And they're kind of in a locker room waiting to get word. Andre Iguodala was one of those Warriors players, willing to take a stand with the Clippers. Yeah, I was, I mean, I was all in, you know, like, shut down the whole season. But maybe that I was that was too far. But as far as that game that day, you know, you could reschedule it. You got you got to sort this thing out because uh, there's some deep rooted stuff with him that had to be addressed. The Clippers, the Warriors, the NBA, all of them were in uncharted territory. No team had ever refused to start a game in the NBA before. 
Never mind the playoffs. What would the league do? Who would be disqualified or forced to forfeit? And was it even fair to ask these men to give up on their lifelong dream when they'd done nothing wrong? And the fault for all the hate and all the racism was still living comfortably in Beverly Hills. We were trying to decide what to do, and everybody was saying we should boycott, we shouldn't play, and the idea was like, okay, we haven't been playing for him in the first place. We didn't, you know, gather up before jump ball and say, all right, Donald Sterling on three, one, two, three. We don't play for Donald. I've never played one game in my career for Donald Sterling. I've never played for a number of these owners. I play for myself. I play for the NBA for the love of the game. Welcome to Oakland, California. Oracle Arena, the LA Clippers and the Golden State Warriors. It's game four of their first round best of seven playoff series. When the Clippers arrived at Oracle Arena, the stage was set for a protest. A Clippers protest. All eyes were on them. I thought the Clippers had the grandest of stages to make a worldwide stand against what Sterling said. It was a Sunday afternoon playoff game in which the whole world was watching. As if he hadn't already done enough damage to his players, Donald Sterling managed to make things even more difficult. Word got out that he was coming to the game. While this is happening, Donald goes, well, I'm still going to the game. He's still in La La Land, and we're like, yo, this dude is nuts. As usual, the job fell to Doc Rivers to find a way to fix it. It was an hour before the game. Um, I'm on the phone with ownership, having a, a, the most heated argument you could possibly have. Um, and I think I didn't get on the floor until a minute because I was still in the argument um, about who was going to come to the game. In the end, Doc won, and Donald for once caved. The Clippers owner stayed away and watched on TV with Clippers president Andy Roser. While back at Oracle, ready or not, it was time for the Clippers to make their statement. With the Clippers, there's been a lot of talk about what action the players should do. What do you hope to see today from these teams? Well, the only action that would be wrong is inaction or neutrality. At 30 minutes to game time, the Clippers left the locker room to wait in the tunnel. Uh, The Clippers huddled in their hallway right outside the locker room. They locked arms, they had their heads down, uh, and they were overheard shouting, quote, it is just us, only us, we are all we got. It was back and forth and ideas on what to do and this, this and that. The announcer's voice echoed throughout the sold-out crowd at Oracle Arena, introducing the Clippers. It was time to take the court. I remember they walked out. I'm like, they're going to do it. They're going to do something. This is going to be that moment. My Tommy Smith, John Carlos, 1968 moment. I'm going to be here to see it. It's in Oakland. It's the home of the Black Panthers, right? Back in the locker room, the Clippers had finally landed on what they were going to do. And I just said, you know, let's turn our jerseys inside our our warm-up shirt so it doesn't say Clippers basketball on them. And then as soon as we get out there, let's just throw them in in the center court together. Doc Rivers had told the Clippers players, whatever you guys decide to do, do it as a team. The Clippers emerged from the tunnel and jogged to center court. They took off all their warm-up tops, and what the Clippers are wearing are T-shirts that are inside out, so it is basically just an all-red top. Their tops do not have anything related to the name Clipper on them right now. 
After the slightest of pauses, they turned, left center court, and started their practice, forming their layup line. We've been taught by Jesse Owens in the Olympics, who performed right in front of Hitler, that you perform. You go out and you don't let anyone talk you out of your job and what you dreamed of. We have a shot, and I think that's the message. So I think this is a message of action. To be honest, I got teary-eyed. I was sad. My mom's from the South. My parents have dealt with a lot of racism things, so I was hoping that they were going to make a grandstand. I was hoping that they weren't going to play. I remember when they started playing, man, I, I got tears in my eyes of disappointment. I think if they had boycotted, it would have been a history book story. It would have been iconic. But they decided to go the more peaceful road. They're not playing for the Clipper organization today. They are playing for Doc Rivers, and they're playing for each other as a group, not for Donald Sterling's team. The Clippers wanted to make their statement on the court. But once the game tipped off... Curry turns a corner on a pick. Flips one up and in as he is knocked along the end line. The Warriors came out firing. The Clippers had nothing. What a play. The Warriors look as if they will not be denied on this afternoon. Here in the they Bay blasted us just because our energy was gone. And we were focused on everything but basketball. Led by 20 in the first quarter as Curry went 5 for 5 from downtown in the first period. Had 17 first quarter points. They fed on it. I don't know if I can go this far, but like they played against us like they were playing against Sterling. Like we were the bad guys. Like they attacked us like they wanted his head. <laughs> you know, and I don't know if that was exactly their mindset, but there was no mindset of we're we're cool with you guys or we feel bad. They ain't feel bad for us. They owned it. The Clippers lost 118 to 97. So you saw the result. Now they need to win a basketball game. Doc and his team left San Francisco on Sunday night in a bad situation. The series was tied at two games apiece. The Clippers were suddenly in danger of not making it out of the first round. We're about to throw our season away. So we had to get it together. We had to figure stuff out, man. Now the series was headed back to L.A., we're going home now, and usually that would mean we're going to our safe haven. And I don't even know if that's true, to be honest. I'd be lying if I was to say I wasn't nervous, you know, about what it's going to be like. Is it going to be easier or harder to go back to L.A. And, and, and deal with it? Because the city of Los Angeles was dealing with the Sterling Tapes, too. The city that's been home to some of America's worst racial divisions. The Watts riots in 1965 the riots after the Rodney King verdict in 1992, the O.J. Simpson trial. Now the largest residential landlord in Los Angeles, a man with a history of housing discrimination, is saying this on tape? There was legitimate fear that when the series moved back to L.A., violence might erupt, especially with a fuse like Donald Sterling, a man who could start a firestorm with a wet match. Donald Sterling is a person who should not own a basketball team with black players on it. It's outrageous. I think Donald Sterling is um, a despicable and a bad guy. The hashtag Boycott Clippers was trending on every platform you can hashtag on. And Doc Rivers had to take that on, too. 
I had to show up at the Staples Center and put out this crazy fire that I had nothing to do with. The employees were threatening to walk out. They were getting bombarded by people calling them Uncle Tom racist, and they didn't do it. It's Donald did it. The phones at the Clippers' offices were ringing off the hook with calls from angry, hurt people from all over. You're scum for supporting a racist like Donald Sterling. You're just as racist as he is. There were so many death threats, and the whole situation was so traumatic that the NBA had to call in a crisis counselor. The league brought in some uh, people for emotional support. I remember, um, my broadcast buddy, Brian Seaman, saying, you got to go sit down with that person and talk to him. He said, you're, you're all messed up. And I, I did not do that. I perhaps should have. I might have uh, shortened my period of shock and grief. It was such a terrible time for all of us. I may have handled it as poorly as anybody because I'd, I'd been around for so long, 35 years in or something or other, and it just really rocked me. It, it was an emotional roller coaster, but it was all downhill. You never thought you were going to get to get back to the top again. Then the Clippers' sponsorships began to evaporate. Among the largest sponsors, the Humash Indians, they have dropped out, as has CarMax and Virgin America. State Farm and Kia and Red Bull are suspending their marketing operations. In fact, Red Bull has told the Clippers they do not want any signage in the Staples Center. The Clippers were hurtling towards elimination if they couldn't get their basketball focus back. And both the team and the NBA were flirting with the not-yet-invented term of being canceled if the league didn't deal with Donald Sterling. I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and a broom. A performance-enhancing broom. My name is John Cullen. I'm a comedian, podcaster, and for 20 years, I was a semi-professional curler. And I want to tell you the story about how a single broom almost imploded the 500-year-old sport of curling. We felt like we were bringing a knife to a gunfight. It's the story of a superstar and his fall from grace. Oh, I was being dragged through the mud. It's the story of two brother entrepreneurs with a dream. Yeah, I said, that's great news. It's a story of intrigue. I still don't understand why we want to keep his name secret. The full story has never been told, so I'm going to tell it. Broomgate. How a broom almost killed curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. To listen to Broomgate, search for Broomgate in your favorite podcast app. That's all one word. Broomgate. Justice, never mind racial justice, can be a tricky thing to ask for in the NBA, or anywhere else for that matter. A professional sports league is a very particular bubble, where crazy amounts of wealth and fame help shape a world that often feels cut off from reality. But a league like the NBA is also a reflection of the world around it, where historically the power has been held by old, rich white men. Even the commissioner, the one person in position to serve justice, literally works for the owners, not the players. But unfortunately for those old, rich white men, times were changing. Kevin Johnson was representing the NBA Players Association at the time, and spoke to the press about the kinds of conversations that were happening behind the scenes. 
we all got on the phone and the players around the league said we want an immediate investigation they wanted to make sure that the players voices were heard uh, they didn't want to be passive uh, participants they wanted to be active and have a seat at the table and lastly they wanted the uh, the maximum sanction the most severe sanctions possible uh, that were allowable under the NBA guideline Johnson made these demands public including asking silver for a full reckoning of Sterling's history of racist incidents and answers about why the NBA had never sanctioned him. The Clippers chose not to boycott Game 4, but that didn't mean Game 5 was a lock to play. If Silver's investigation didn't end with a judicial outcome, the protests would no longer be polite or silent. Right after uh, I talked to the players, I called Commissioner Silver, and he just said, this is really hard for the league right now. And I told him, it's hard for the league, but it's a defining moment. It's our moment of truth, and it's us uh, using sports once again to transcend the everyday challenges of society and lead by example. The NBA no longer had the option to sit back and do nothing about Donald Sterling's racism. It's not that Donald Sterling's beliefs were unique or even new. That plantation mentality has been around as long as this country has existed. The players understood the world was changing. And it was changing, in part, because of them. Seven years earlier, in 2008, when Donald Sterling was in the middle of his housing discrimination lawsuit with the Department of Justice, the NBA was still a league where the players remained relatively quiet on political issues. You know, I remember when LeBron James had a teammate who was protesting about what was going on in Darfur, and they asked LeBron about it, and he was like, uh, I need to do more research. No comment. But then LeBron James did that research and chose to comment. James says he will help raise awareness about China's role in Sudan. There should be some kind of light shine upon it, and as athletes, our word is so strong that um, a lot of people listen to it. He had realized something. His voice as a player mattered. With millions of fans around the world, he had the power to influence. And he had a responsibility to do something with that power. You know, at the end of the day, we're talking about human rights. We're not talking about contracts here. We're not talking about, you know, money. We're talking about people's lives being lost. A tremor of change started to rumble throughout the NBA. Two years later, in 2010, LeBron James claimed his power as a superstar in the league in a way no player ever had before. The answer to the question everybody wants to know. LeBron, what's your decision? He announced his decision to leave the Cleveland Cavaliers like live on national television. Um, and this fall, I'm going to take my talents to South Beach and um, join the Miami Heat. His plan? Go to Miami and form a super team with Dwayne Wade and Chris Bosh. Bosh for three. That's good. Wade splits the defense and throws it down. It worked. The Heat went to the finals for four straight years. LeBron James throws it down. Miami back up by one. But losing their superstar decimated the value of the Cavs and terrified owners around the league. The realization that one player could impact their bottom line like that. And even worse, the fear that players could and would band together to make the league work the way that they wanted it to. So the owners began the fight to make it harder for any player to ever have that much power over a franchise again. Well, the NBA lockout officially began last night, 12.01 a.m. Eastern time. The owners wanted their power back. And in the 2011 lockout, they got it. 
After a 149-day lockout, approximately half a billion dollars in losses, a handshake agreement early Saturday. The owner's revenue share went up, as did the penalty for teams who went over the salary cap. What kind of deal has this ended up being for the players? Well, it hasn't ended up being the greatest deal in the world. We all know that they've had to give back in excess of a billion dollars. A clear win for management and a clear message from owners to players. We're still in control. Didn't last very long, though, because the real world finally came crashing through the NBA's bubble. This is the face of 17-year-old Trayvon Martin, whose death has provoked weeks of demonstrations and tonight, a rally in New York City. The NBA couldn't control how horrors in the real world would affect its African-American players or how those players would respond. And as you can see here, LeBron James took to Twitter. He posted a team photo of the Miami Heat clad in hoodies. It was accompanied by the hashtag, we are Trayvon Martin. We're now in an area of social media. Michelle Roberts is the executive director of the NBA Players Association. These young men have millions of people following them, and they know it. And these young men know that the millions of people that are following them are listening. There is a certain degree of power that comes with with that knowledge. Something happens, they can instantaneously tell you what they think, good, bad, indifferent. They can speak to millions of people just by the push of a button. That social media whole aspect changed. It was a real power shift just on a day-to-day basis. The world is hearing from the players, not the owners. And in the years leading up to this moment, players like Matt Barnes were all about embracing that new power. We're definitely more than shut up and dribble now. You know, basketball is such a small part of who we are and what we do. You know, we're most of we're all men, first and foremost, but, you know, fathers, you know, husbands, brothers, and then, you know, business owners and philanthropists, and we do so much stuff out there. It's a fight that didn't begin with Donald Sterling. It's been happening historically, both in our game and in other sports, for many, many, many years. But the players that I work for are men, and they demand to be treated like men, not quote-unquote mere athletes, but as men. And men don't tolerate the kind of ignorance that was Donald Sterling. You don't tolerate that in your space. When this tape came out, the players had megaphones and weren't afraid to use them, like the Warriors' Andre Iguodala. We can't forget how much power we have, and whenever we get our opportunities, we got to put it, you know, pedal into the metal and just attack them. We got to go at their necks when they give us opportunity, or because we always get exposed when we make mistakes, and they don't. No one's really held accountable the way we are when we make mistakes. So I always say, listen, when we get the opportunity to put our foots on their neck, we got to go get them. Through the players' union, the players made it clear to Adam Silver. The players feel that this owner is not fit and worthy to be a part of the NBA family. And as one family, you know, if there's a hint of racism like cancer, you have to immediately take it out. Adam Silver's investigation moved fast. He took four days to talk to players, coaches, and owners. His investigator talked to Donald, who confirmed that, yes, that was him on the tape. He also talked to V and her lawyer. V maintained that Donald knew she was recording him, and she provided proof of a third person on one of the tapes to back up that claim. This was an important detail, maybe the most important detail, because it's illegal to record someone without their knowledge in the state of California. And now that Silver knew the tape was legit, he could act. On Tuesday, April 29th, at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, mere hours before Game 5, 
Adam Silver called a press conference. You are looking live at Midtown Manhattan, where NBA Commissioner Adam Silver is expected uh, to take the podium any second now. It was one of those where were you when moments when everyone everywhere comes to a grinding halt. At this point, it ain't about Dominique, I I, I apologize. I'm going to have to interrupt you because we see the commissioner right now. Here comes the commissioner now. He's made his way into the room. So Jamel will hold that. Let's go out to the commissioner live. now. I was standing outside the Clippers practice facility reporting for ESPN. Where's the mic? Need the mic, they're coming back. Need the mic, need the mic. In one ear, I had to feed from the studio. And in the other, the press conference. My job was to make sense of Silver's decision in real time. Let's go out to the commissioner live now. Shortly after the release of an audio recording this past Saturday morning of a conversation that allegedly included Clippers owner Donald Sterling, the NBA commenced an investigation which, among other things, included an interview of Mr. Sterling. That investigation is now complete. The The only people that were going to really make a change, not just stand up, because I think we stood up, but the only people that were really going to make a change was Adam Silver and the other owners. Effective immediately, I am banning Mr. Sterling for life from any association with the Clippers organization or the NBA. Mr. Sterling may not attend any NBA games or practices. He may not be present at any Clippers facility, and he may not participate in any business or player personnel decisions involving the team. I was shocked by what I heard. I was prepared for a lengthy suspension. I was prepared for a fine. I wasn't prepared for this. Adam Silver was not going for the maximum sentence. He was doing more than we even realized he could do. He will also be barred from attending NBA Board of Governors meetings or participating in any other league activity. I am also fining Mr. Sterling $2.5 million, the maximum amount allowed under the NBA Constitution. The commissioner works for the owners. And here he was, banning one of them for life. I could not imagine his predecessor, David Stern, doing this. The guy who turned the other cheek so many times. But Adam Silver had listened to the players. He'd taken a stand against an owner that many of us knew the league had abided by for decades. Why did you ban Donald Sterling for life? I believe that he had crossed a line that broke the the essence of the contract, of the moral fiber of this league, the values that had been part of this league from its earliest days. And I didn't think it could be repaired. I think that's where the lifetime ban came in. I felt that there was no way that we could turn the clock back at that point. His tenure was going to be judged on what he did off this very first incident, you know, as commissioner. And I think he handled it great. I will say there was probably an advantage in my newness to the job in that it all happened so quickly. I didn't spend a lot of time putting my actions into a broader context of sports leagues or society because I had an immediate issue that required an immediate decision. By making this decision and listening to his players, Silver validated the players' power in this league. I saw this as an incremental step 
in terms of player rights. And I, I often mm-hmm. trace player empowerment back to the early days of this league. And to me, this was part of the DNA of the players in this league. This has been a painful moment for all members of the NBA family. I appreciate the support and understanding of our players during this process. We stand together in condemning Mr. Sterling's views. They simply have no place in the NBA. Silver had acted swiftly and fairly, exactly what he said he would do. Well, it was great. It's a great day. Magic Johnson, the guy who had been at the center of Donald's racist tirade. It's a great day for you know, the United States. It was a great day for the NBA. It's a great day for uh, all people of all races, but especially you know, African-Americans, Latinos, who you know, he was speaking out against. Mark Spears was across town, where a crowd had gathered at City Hall. What I do remember is um, being at City Hall and like Kareem being there and Kevin Johnson and Steve Nash and former players and some current players, and they're ready to pounce. And the announcement came out, and everybody was ready to scream and pick it and burn Staples Center down. And Adam Silver was like, we're going to ban this man. When that came out, we are like, what? Wow. <laughs> like, stunned. Everybody was absolutely stunned, put down their picket signs and their flaming torches, and like everything they're about to do. And like, hey, well, ain't nothing we could do stronger than that. I don't know if Adam Silver will have a greater moment in his career and it happened in the early days. I was still standing outside the Clippers' practice facility when the press conference ended. Cars were driving by and honking their horns in celebration. It felt like all of Los Angeles pulled back from the brink. Finally, someone had done something about Donald Sterling. Inside, the Clippers kept practicing. They had a game to play. All eyes, sports fans and otherwise, focused on Staples Center tonight. It's game five between the Warriors and Clippers. Silver's decision had come just a few hours before the Clippers were set to play game five back in Los Angeles. I feel like I aged 30 years in the past four days. It has been uh, an emotional roller coaster. And I really feel like today, with Commissioner Silver's uh, swift and very thorough announcement, the cloud was lifted from the players' heads, the fans' heads. You see a ray of sunshine, you see some blue sky, and think, hey, there's hope, and we could have a great three-game series starting tonight. In all my years of covering sports, I have never experienced anything like that Game 5 at the Staples Center. We stand to say, we stand to show our team that we're here. So stand up until tip-off, because tonight we are one. The crowd will never be more important than it is tonight. This club is emotionally drained. Dr. Chris said he's emotionally drained. I can tell you, I'm emotionally drained. And that extra adrenaline, that lift you get from a raucous crowd, could be the difference for this ball club here tonight. The stands were filled with fans wearing black. All of the ads have been covered in black, every last one of them. At game time, every NBA team turned their website to black with the message, 
We are one. Felt the energy. It was the liveliest building I had ever been in as a Clipper. It was amazing. The Staples Center was booming with this overwhelming feeling of Donald Sterling, the racist, had left the building. But his wife Shelley was still there. I think it was suggested that I sit all the way up on the top. Even though her husband was no longer allowed anywhere near the building, Shelly Sterling came to Game 5. She'd been at Game 4, she'd sat in her courtside seats, and it hadn't gone over well. At Game 5, she'd been asked to sit up in a luxury box. I couldn't even see what, what, what the game was about. I think they just wanted to see the reaction of the fans, what they might say if I sat on the floor, they might get upset. I just felt that If that's what they want, I'll do that so I don't cause any problem. And I can still watch my team. Technically, this was still her team. She was still allowed to be there. And in many ways, she was still welcome. I thought Shelly was very, very kind, very, very nice. She at least talked to me by name, spoke to me by name, and, you know, was encouraging. I got a chance. Like, I talked to her a lot more than I talked to Donna. And I really just found her as a pleasant, you know, nice lady. But Shelly's presence did put the team in a tough spot. She was guilty by association. It was, it was very awkward. I felt I wanted to be at the games. It's my team, and I love the team. You know, you didn't know her personally, but you, you felt bad for her. Uh-huh. But it still was a weird energy. Why are you still here? Why are you going to be on the front row? You married him. You, how far removed are you from that? So, yeah, I do feel bad, but I don't know how much I trust you. I felt that I'm not a racist, and we never were a racist, and I wanted to show the people I'm not afraid of anybody, and I have nothing to fear. While Shelly watched from above, the Clippers tried to get their mojo back on the court. The Clippers won that game and held on to win the series. But I decided I couldn't keep following the Clippers' playoff run. Not because I had any way of knowing they'd lose in the next round to Oklahoma City and be done with their season, but because what was going on the rest of the playoffs wasn't really the story anymore. The story now was what the hell happens to this franchise. Sure, Silver had banned Donald, but it was a gesture, not a solution. Donald still owned the team, And Adam Silver still had to figure out how the NBA could undo that fact and find a new owner. And he needed to do it quickly. I needed to follow how all this was going to shake out between Adam Silver and the Sterlings. I had a hunch that the drama was only starting, although I had no idea how dramatic it would all end up being. Donald was never one to back down from a fight. And every other day, some celebrity or billionaire was coming out as a potential buyer for the team. 
As the team wins on the court, there's no shortage of celebrities who want to get in on the action. I'd say Magic Johnson. <laughs> It'd be cool if it was Magic, I guess. Boxer Floyd Mayweather and rapper Sean Diddy Combs. And the list grows. In addition to Floyd and Diddy, there was speculation that music mogul David Geffen and Oracle CEO Larry Ellison would put in a bid. Their group also included Oprah Winfrey. Oprah seemed to understand that the writing was on the wall for Donald Sterling and the NBA. This wasn't just about the sale of a basketball team. As she told TMZ, this was bigger. All I gotta say is, we're all off the plantation. Plantation days are old. But to get there, we would end up where everything with Donald ends up. In court. But this time, it wouldn't be the Sterlings versus someone else. It would be Donald versus Shelley. 